Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ali Farha, Dennis Greger, and Oscar Wernerson to discuss how the gaming industry compares in development to other industries. So before we delve deeper into that topic, let's work our way around the room with some small introductions. Uh, Dennis, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So, yeah, the name's Dennis Greger. Uh, I work with uh, Ubisoft Stockholm in Sweden. Um, I'm currently a producer uh, handling our audio narrative and a couple of tech teams, but uh, have been around town in the studio as a narrative designer uh, for a year as well. I, my, my background is in reality TV. I was a freelancer for 13 years. This is my first full-time position. Very exciting. Uh, so yes, I am very used to the entertainment industry in, in general. Oscar? Yeah, sure. Hey everyone, I'm Oscar Wernersen. I am uh, a producer from mobile games uh, studio Toborella. So Toborella creates uh, action sports games, for those who don't know, and our big title is Masked Mario Cross 3. Uh, 3, 3. Um, great game, by that. Um, so my background is actually very, very broad. My background is um, from restaurants, nightclubs, I work as a DJ on the weekends, um, but it's also um, e-commerce um, and probably regular commerce. So very, very diverse background. And I ended up in, in the games industry because I've played games and it's always a kid. And it was my dream since I was like five years old. And uh, just ended up as a producer. And as I thought, it's fitted like my skill set. So I'm really, really enjoying life as a producer. I'm really enjoying life at the And I'm happy to be in this podcast. And have a chat with you guys. Perfect. Uh, and last but not least, Ali. Yes. Hello, everyone. My name is Ali Farah, and you did pronounce my name correctly, which is impressive. I am a technical producer at Star Stable Entertainment, which is an MMO game, MMO horse game for girls, and the game being live for 11 years, believe it or not. I handled two teams, actually, engine and tools, since we have our own engine, our own tools. And it's really exciting mission ahead of us to keep the game running for extra decade. Uh, I have a, like, a, I, I do have a master in computer engineering degree. I worked in different, actually, industries, not uh, gaming is not my, like, my all, only or the, the first. I have been in various industries, so looking forward to start, actually, discuss our own differences. Perfect. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, so now that we've got a bit of a context to everyone and what they do, let's move on to the topic. Um, so we've all uh, got a question or a statement on how the gaming industry compares to other industries. So we're all going to have our own chance to answer the question and um, ask our own questions and the reason behind that. So let's start with the question that is um, from me. So, do you feel like educative content plays a smaller role in video games than other comparable media? And if you do, why is that? This one, I find that... I want to answer this question as if it was asked 10 years ago, because then it definitely would have been, hell yes, there's a huge difference. And I, I do think there's a strong business case for anyone listening out there to get into edu educative content in games. Uh, it's definitely underserved. But I would say that entertainment in general has kind of moved away from that. Uh, I remember the, the late noughties and early tens 
that we when when the term edutainment was huge in TV, it was something we talked about all the time and how to make formats more more give the impression of educating the viewers uh, as well as entertaining them. Uh, that that was that was really the difference between being able to sell uh, a production or not. Uh, and that conversation I have never had with anyone from GameStop, frankly. Uh, there's there's really almost no interest in creating something that the the, the user can 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 relate to in their ordinary life, uh, which is weird because it's such a such a strong way of creating a memorable experience. Uh, yeah, I can't agree more. Actually, uh, it's something I. Wonder we don't we, we never really dived into uh, more, even though actually I can share like a small experience I have done or experiment. Uh, I, I do teach part time in a, in a game school and I do teach QA for game designers. So I made a simple game for them based on bugs. So it is like bugs by design. It's really small level uh, with like my really low skills in uh, using uh, Unity. Everyone really appreciated that. I felt like it was so fun to try finding bugs, learning what they have, like uh, what they have like uh, took during the course, and apply that in a small prototype. I can share that with you later. The colleagues here in the call. Uh, it's called Bug Hunter. It's called Bug Hunter, <laughs> and that was like a very small experience. But I never had it, like a more in-depth discussion with like uh, with people from the industry how we can move forward with education content in our games. Uh, I would like to hear from Oscar first, and maybe we can try to see how it's more challenging doing that compared to like a normal gamification in like board or cards. Oscar, do you have any input? Yeah. So I feel like. Well, it's it's not what I feel. It's a fact that um, the games industry is driven by revenue, like any other industry. And 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 if you don't make revenue, you're not going to have a company for very very long. So I think that's definitely part of the equation in this case. Uh, but at the same time, um, my experience of educated content or educated games have been a mixed bag, to be honest. Like when I was a kid 20 years ago, I think there were plenty of games that were in a part of the education, especially in math, that were actually quite decent. Like my mother is a teacher and she showed me some of the games that the students are playing now uh, as part of their education, uh, educative process. And, um, and they're just horrible. They're absolutely horrible. They're, 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 I don't feel like they're even that educative. And the teach, like my mother agrees. She feels like a, in this case, they don't really um, learn anything. So I'm um, trying to describe, for example, one thing that really stuck with me is this game where, where the kids are, in, in, with the use of math, they're going to jump um, as a penguin from one platform to another. And um, every platform has a number. So it's basically like it's, it's a, a simple addition. And if the, um, if the student uh, picks the wrong number or the wrong platform, they fall into the water. But there's no feedback or anything in terms of like what the, the, um, the player, in this case, the student, did wrong. And we're talking about kids in, in the age of six or seven or eight, and there's absolutely no feedback as to like what they did wrong. So it's literally trial, trial and error for them. And if, if you're going to make educated content, 
I, I don't think it's it's like, for example, trial and error would be acceptable in any other part of the educating process. So, for example, uh, I think in, in this case, if, if, if the games are like this, then the, the teachers feel like it's a waste of time. And if the teachers feel like it's a waste of time, um, they won't really want the students to play the game. So I think if, if it plays a smaller part, it's probably because it's not really accepted or the teachers who are going to be teaching the kids, they don't really like what's available. This, this, this kind of stuff drives me crazy because the stuff that's called educational is so often made by junior, junior people with junior experience. They're hiring. I mean, I don't want to. I'm not going to trash talk any specific companies, but I, I happen to know quite a few in Stockholm that are where where the CEO has no experience with the game scene or game development at all, but has seen this market uh, and is using junior, well, inexperienced people to create games that are just bad. And I have two kids, so finding quality, just quality content for them is a pain. Uh, and educational content, that's, that's a no-go. And I think we need to make a difference between educational games or that like where the education tag is there versus like i think i'm, I'm not gonna sit here and polish ali's ass unnecessarily but like star stable is in my book a great example of a game that has a strong educational base and like minecraft is my i mean it is used in schools it's a it's a glorious game for so many reasons and i, I, I but we're, we're we're exceptionally good at teaching players economy as well. Like there are so many games out there, many of them that I happen to love myself, where I play some kind of mini capitalist and learn, actually learn economical basics that's really useful for me in, in my, my, my real life as well. And I think there's more experiences there to explore. Like we've shown that horses is a whole world and a big ass game, but, but I mean, how about childcare? <laughs> like that—that's a pretty big thing. I—I I, I really would like to chime in here, Dennis. You—you—we uh, are just seeing something very interesting here. First of all, there's like pure educational games, like pure, just like you go there for only education content. And mm -hmm. usually, those what Dennis refer to designed by really people don't have a like really good design, like a, it, it's really really bad design. So you, you end up with a dry content material instead of like re receiving it from a human being you're receiving it from a machine and it's basically just using a game engine i don't really see those actually a real like fun educational uh, content or a gamified what, what alternative solution do we have first of all we can educate people indirectly like we do in our game or like assassin's creed is like i've seen comments People wrote that we have learned history from Assassin's Creed more than an entire course at university or like a school the entire lifetime. So there's, there's a couple of ways to actually make a real educational content in game. It's either like direct or indirect. And if you go back to the, what Oscar said about revenue, 
we ha we have higher chances to ha have the educational part is indirect because we can we can still have a huge revenue or like a hopefully good revenue and educational content. But if you want to make a really pure educational content, you need to make it very very good because I'm expecting that I I would be enjoying while playing and learning. And I can give examples. The game called Wild to Learn. Something like yeah, while to learn, it teaches you the fund fundamental of like if for loops conditions. It's really really fun game, and they do something very interesting because if you make if you want to make the game fun, it can be 100% realistic. So what they do, they let you design systems in really like a pure systematic way, and they have like the screen split into half. So this is the game experience, and the second half is actually telling you how it is implemented in real life. And documentation. So you're having a pure education. You have the game experience aside. So you, you you're enjoying. You're having fun. You are learning. You want to dive more. You click here. If you want, just you want to enjoy without really write type code by yourself. You can just enjoy the game. So in my opinion, making a good educational games is really tough because expectation is really really should be high because I should be enjoying where I'm learning. And I don't believe a lot of designers really, really understand that concept because it usually be handed to, uh, we don't have experience in it overall. Like, like, like Dennis said, like we don't have a many good educational games in the market right now. So none of us really, really have a good experience, even though we have been in the industry for many, many years, we have been making games for revenue or what, whatever else. It's it's a matter of premise. Like I I uh, I have tried. I have been part of projects where that are sold to an educative uh, um, institution, and they need to be guaranteed that this will be a learning experience. And that that's it's it's kind of hard to meet their their uh, the boundaries they they set up because they're not as used to entertainment. On the other side, Assassin's Creed is, I mean, arguably, it's a good example. You are using the history of mankind to make the whole product, which fundamentally is not necessarily mass market. Like, not everyone dreams of being a freaking assassin. Uh, but if I can be it in ancient Greece, that's that's actually widens the audience and i think that's the business case we should be making is like see it as create an experience that's relatable uh, and use so like yeah the educative most importantly needs yeah. to be fun i mean I in, 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 like i think we all agree that the biggest challenge in making games will always be to make the game fun but then if you take that even to a further extent to make it fun and educative is probably even harder because i mean i think most of you have, have perhaps had a teacher in school like a, i think especially physics teachers are like this they can be absolute like wizards when it comes to physics and math but when it comes to actually teaching and reaching out to the audience they are often very very poor so, like, I, I think that's also a part of the problem. It's 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 just hard to make education fun without like you you always have to kind of balance between like okay when it, like how do I teach while at the same sometimes make it fun and then like yeah it's it's just it's really really challenging. Um, yeah. 
how many good teachers do we do we have? How, how many teachers, mm. good teach, amazing teachers, do you recall from your childhood until today? You might say one, two, or none. So it is really, really nice challenge. But now, now we're talking about. I really want to take this forward, and I want to actually challenge myself and my colleagues in game design and see, like, can we make a really fun educational game to try this? Because, like I said, uh, I can give you an example. Roblox is one of the like most played game am mm. among Minecraft, and they have their own editor where you can design levels. This is really an amazing way to teach kids programming or design, right? It it is, but I'm not sure they have done it in that to that purpose, right? They made they made this to make it more in sandbox and more engagement. So I feel like when when it happened to have a really good educational system, it just happened because side effect. It's not like something I don't believe they are really truly planned it to be educational content. That's how we yeah, because feel. exactly, yeah, I, I think you're right. Because um, it, it, when you think like, okay, I want this to be educated, it's very easily becomes very rigid and stiff. So I think yeah. you were really touching on something important there. They were like trying to make it fun, and then it ended up also being educated as a side effect. Yeah. I mean, pri privately, I, I have a long background with uh, role-playing games and, and LARP. And really, what's the, the, the questions I go home with from a session or from a, an, a, a weekend experience at a LARP uh, are educating me. And we, as a, as, a, as a business, have the ability to give people experiences to actually live something, to experience what another situation is. And I feel like we're not using that very much. And using that is a good way of selling product to new people. So like the whole... The, I, I think this leans into the, the issue of like diversity. It's turned into this weird um, value-based statement. But if we have a very crass economical standpoint on it, we want to widen our audience. So let's use educative content as a way for doing that. And we are glorious at educating players, but we don't, we call it onboarding. It's, it's something entirely different, but we are so goddamn the experience that educating players uh, into how to play our games that those skills are it's the same let's just use that i think uh, there's a good segue for me to jump in there um fantastic answers to that first question guys um I am going to plug another podcast that I did actually uh, to the viewers just while they're listening. You asked a question in there, Oscar, about creating fun and you know how that's done. I recorded a podcast last night on how do we create fun and how it's assessed. So um, while you're listening to this one, um, definitely keep an eye out for that one as well. <laughs> but Ali, we'll move on to your question. Yes. Can't wait for my question, which is an interesting topic about quality. You know, <laughs> I would like to ask the colleagues here in the, the the meeting or the podcast, how do you see handling quality during production differs between gaming industry and previous industry you have been at? And I can see Dennis already start like, oh, no, we're not talking about crashes or quality again, or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I'll, I think I should start because I, by now I have 16 years in really, I mean, games and TV and film to a certain extent are truly immature 
industries and I, I I'll, I'll speak for TV we we calling it the process is would be laughable like there there is often a person that ends up being the the guardian of quality uh, no matter the size of the team I've been in productions with five people up to 50 uh, and that person doesn't necessarily have to be the leader, the one that's supposed to have that job. It often ends up being someone somewhere else in the whole organization. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I actually, I look forward to hearing your answers because I hope you have more structured experiences. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, Ali, you're probably asking this because you have a, a very strong feeling about this yourself. Uh, but I think Dennis, you were touching upon something that I've often felt um, and that is, you have a certain person, a guardian of some sorts of the quality. And it's, I think it's, it's, there are several potential issues with that. Um, so one of those potential issues is like you said, if it's a person that's not really, in, it's not the person it's supposed to be, it's another person. And I think out of, out of like, I've, I've worked in small teams and small organizations, uh, small organizations so far. And it sometimes end up, for example, in my role being me, even though like I'm a producer, I'm not really supposed to be taking the sole creative responsibility. And sometimes it's very easy to just get ahead of yourself as producer and start making decisions about things that you are not perhaps supposed to be making decisions about. That is a, uh, in, in my role as producer. And that is also, like you said, if, it, if it's a sole person being the guardian, that's an issue with them. But then you have the opposite, and that is if it's too much of a democratic approach, and then it completely slows decision making down, and you get indecisive, and you can get like some real quality issues because you have so many views, and it's really hard to find like a red thread um, that that's like got, like this is the way we're going, and we're gonna keep on this path. So it, it's really hard, and it's really easy that if you use a democratic approach. And to just like stray and, and not really um, be like, um, yeah, this is really hard. So Ali, what's your take? Yeah. <laughs> my, my take that <laughs> I came from, I used to be actually QA uh, lead and test lead in different products. And most of them were actually critical, like uh, safety critical, such as like a medical device and automotive industry and braking systems. So there's no joke, a bug might literally kill someone while it's hopefully weightless uh, in the gaming industry. Still, I when I moved to the gaming industry, I was really shocked like when i when i say that i say that like i mean a lot of i I'm, I'm like including a lot of studios we're getting there stuff is really improving and multiple in the in the industry in general but like dennis said we're really really far behind most of the industries like way way behind we don't have like really like good tools since we have like proprietary engines and there's a lot of like we each one of companies to have our own engine and tools, which make it really hard to have a really generic, amazing tools, third party tools maintained by some big company. Even though like commercial engines such as like Unreal and Unity, they start to include like functional tests and some certain automation. Still like it's really early stages. I don't see that as being like beneficial enough to or like uh, sufficient for the big projects so there's lack of tools and documentation that's um, I, I don't believe I, I don't i don't believe anyone in the gaming industry knows what that means like when it, 
So we, we usually, I, 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 I even forgot myself. I just Googled what's documentation means. It's like basically you write something, describe how it should behave or work. Believe or not, I did perform like QA lead on functions without any human interaction with the person. That documentation was the, the, the contract between us. Like, I need this. We wrote code for text that, yeah, this is the function how it should behave. So it was pure black box test driven. I can write the test, the test separately without any code being in place. The code would be written according to the documentation and it's working with fixed bugs. So basically the documentation was our contract and I haven't seen enough documentations around in the gaming industry. So we don't document enough. Like I said, we're improving. We start to know like, yeah, this is like not going to work for the long run. We, we have some GDD game design documents here and there, but I feel like we're far behind from the tools that support us in quality, far behind with like processes. But hey, if you compare the system that I have worked before and any like small game, what people, most of the people never worked in the IT industry or they didn't try to make game themselves. They have no idea how complex it is. Games is one of the most complex piece of software, extremely complex. And when you have multiplayer to it, you add a level of complexity. Uh, like MMO, multiple players, it's a level of complexity. Different platforms, even. So doesn't make sense to maintain or develop an, a very complex piece of software and you have very like primary uh, QA uh, processes and tools. So I feel like this is really weird. And the number of people handling quality in gaming company is way less compared to any different industry. While this number might change at the before release, you know, when AAA releasing, they just out, outsource this to, I feel Dennis, you want to say chime in here? Yeah. Oh. Sorry, no, please, please finish. No, no, it's like I can speak about this forever. So I, <laughs> I can imagine. I, I have two different tracks here. Uh, like one is quality and defining quality, which I care passionately about. And it's a pet peeve of mine. But, but, but what you're telling me here reminds me that I, complexity really seems to be key. Um, film does follow much more of a waterfall model and mm -hmm. and each step of production has key personnel that there can be quite a few of them associated with it with their own expertise and i mean film has been around for 120 years now so like there's much more there's much more um there's much more process in what to hand over to in the next step. I mean, just what a script is, is so well-defined and what each other department does with that script is actually really well-defined. But as soon as you move into reality TV, it is more iterative. You're, you're editing and filming at the same time and pre-production is a lot shorter and you can't really script everything because you're handling actual people in actual situations that can do anything. And now I moved into games where like all of those problems are exaggerated, both especially with the teams, like suddenly going from a 20 person production to a hundred and fifty or like a thousand people production. It's all of the problems from TV just go insane. Uh, and I, I'd say key actually isn't the handing over. There's so seldomly people are, are not often getting what they actually need to do their work correctly. It's like quality in that kind of communication is is crucial. And I think that's maybe why 
us. I mean, that, that's why us producers are, are so important. I, I, I so often see things fall apart because there's not a producer associated with it. And just these soft skills of being able to listen and repeat information between people. That, that Many months, that's mostly what I do. I agree. When, when the entire team is believe that it's equality is everyone's responsibility, not only the QA professionals, then that's like should be the first step to actually make sure that everyone is taking responsibility of the quality very serious. Oscar? Yeah, so I, like, I have actually, I think, a question. So I have very little insight in, into production industries other than the games industry. Uh, I have a little bit of insight into music, for example, for compared to film. And, and, and one feeling I have is that a lot of games and like a lot of game companies, they're like, every time they try to make a game, they're trying to make the next big thing or, or something pioneering. It's it's very rarely that they like okay this is our mo- like this is this is our budget this is what we want to do and this is for like this cohort or, or this group of people because a lot of times it feels like they're always trying to invent reinvent the medium and and could that be like a a, a potential difference to to other industries I, I don't I don't want to come off as cynic here but but the change in the difference in cash is killing like i'm i've spent six weeks arguing about twenty thousand swedish crowns with uh, with uh, uh, the, the the financial advisor at a broadcasting company to get more aerial shots of a building uh which would be part of like the title screen uh and, and that was a like we we were bloodied by that fight uh while in games that kind of cash is it's literally nothing. It's it could be fika, like that. That and that forces TV, especially, but also film by now, to be incredibly careful about each decision. Uh, so I, I genuinely do think. I mean, we seem to be growing for many years to come, but once that changes because it will i mean that's just the history of entertainment you don't see bards running around with cash flowing from their pockets so like we we will change uh, then we'll have to straighten it up just like i would like to a comment here before maybe move on so all the players they are hearing this or like people in the industry or people who want to join the industry sometimes you play a game and it's coming from a big triple a title and say like did anyone actually tested this before releasing? This is something you hear. Trust me, they are aware of every single ticket in there. They they know they know for, they, they know they have it in Jira. They have it like I, I have a friend. I, I'm not gonna name any studio uh, in Stockholm, and he said in one of the games they had like hundred thousands of like bugs. But some of them is just like if you stand on a box uh, on a box, you see the mesh of the sky box or something, or like you see something. So some of them are very minor, but they are aware. They they know. So it's not like they don't, but it's like it's overlooked and it's too hard to change deadlines, cash. There's a lot of factors. I want to touch on the key word here, quality. And it could be a segue as well into the next subject where um, I still think we have a problem with the word fun in games. And it's been discussed for 20 years now, at least, where 
yes, it needs to be fun, but there is so seldom a definition for what the end experience for the user should be. And co coming from narrative design, that's really everything I do. Uh, so I feel like nuancing what quality means is a step that often gets missed. Perfect. I will jump in there um, and I will move it on in just a second. But an interesting thing that I learned very recently, actually, and I'm not going to name studios or specific games because, you know, I've got to be very careful with stuff like that. But uh, a, a game that I play every single year, I absolutely pour hundreds of hours into it every single year. Um, I believe somebody who worked on the game come out on like Reddit or something like that. And obviously you always take that with a bit of a pinch of salt. Um, but he's um, that the the QA team there knows about every single bug, obviously, like you say, but because they're trying to change engine, but it takes so long to do that, uh, the bugs just build up year on year on year until they're able to change that engine, but they still don't know when that's going to be. So it's just, they have like a ticket system where if it's a free and it needs fixing urgently, then they'll work on it. If it's a two or a one, it's just not a problem. It's whatever well that was an interesting little tidbit that i uh, found out not too long ago uh but yeah segue into your question now then dennis so right yeah w what are the traps that come with data-driven development that you've seen in games dev or other media oh my god <laughs> i work in mobile games so i feel like it's it's when it comes to the games industry i think mobile games are the ones that that really are trying to use data and I, I'll, the main trap I've seen is reactivity. So as soon as you get data, it's it's very easy to start reacting without really as like asking questions. So like data is always, or maybe you have opinions about this, but data is always binary. It's always like at the same time, while it's always binary, it can tell you so many stories depending on the questions you ask data. And I think a lot of times people don't really wait and like slow down and really start asking the right questions to the data. So sometimes you see data, okay, revenue is dropping, oh, panic mode, and then you start changing things. And then you end up in a loop where you're always constantly changing things and you're not waiting for for the dust to settle. And if you're not waiting for the dust to settle, you might end up in this infinite loop and just changing things and you're not even sure anymore what's working and what's not. So that's that's the main trap. Um, I see. What about you? I, I love this question. I have done this data-driven development for like a sensor, uh, me and a small team uh, for autonomous uh, driving. So when you, when you do that for like a, a system, do a certain task, even though it's like very specific, it's like a sensor should detect if the vehicle coming, then we end up in scenarios. What if someone with parachute like landed in front of the vehicle, what should happen? So we start to like edge cases. And now we're talking about a hardware, how it works, but collecting KPIs and OKR, uh, collecting that for behaviors or like people or what they want next. I would say that's extremely, extremely difficult. And I would count to a million before count on like, we, we can't avoid using KPIs and OKRs. It's, they're needed to know what, where should we go next, what platforms we should targeting, but we should be, be very careful on what quality of data we're having. Do we have the right systems to actually process those data to, is it, are we looking to the right 
data in uh, the first question. So there's, uh, and I'm afraid that some of the teams will start to be so rigid when working with K KPIs and data. So like they start to lose the bigger picture and so focused. And in this industry is extremely crazy. You might do everything perfectly good but the game is not fun. You might end up living, everything is good, the game is fun, but it's not gonna work for, for like unexpected reason. I can give an example with one of my favorite games, Titanfall 2. It is really, really good game, good shooting game. Everything's, everything is perfect about this game, but they have released it at the same time, Battlefield. I'm not sure, I'm not sure this was the only reason, but that game didn't fly. But look at the comments, look at everyone comments about the game and the feedback. People loved it, but it didn't work. So even though you're following KPIs, Stuff might not work. So you need to be, like Oscar said, we need to be like agile and really, really fast to adapt. I would like to hi highlight the last comment here. Sometimes you KPIs will like, you lose the bigger picture. Let's take Fortnite, for example. They, they have made PVE. I'm pretty sure Epic, it's like a, I trust they have done, uh, collect a lot of KPIs for like a PVE game, how it should look like open world, construction buildings and zombies. It sounds like a good mix. One person in that company with IQ above million said, you know what, let's do, let's do Battle Royale. I'm pretty sure there was no KPI, just like outside of the box, boom. But if that person was so into the KPIs, he was like, why the game is not working? Let's add extra element to it. They would lose a big window. And now they have a few, like Fortnite, like with all the success because of that someone decided to take this course somewhere completely else. So KPIs, I would say, is really important. We should use it, but we should be so careful how we are using it. And like I said, the quality of data, the, uh, yeah. So that's my take on it. But, but do you, do you gentle people have, have any best practices? How, how can, I mean, I can sometimes feel like I'm one producer up against a storm uh, when it comes to these issues. It's because uh, I, I recognize I'm a bit disappointed that we seem to agree very much. So this won't be much of a discussion. <laughs> but like, what, what what would you what do you do to resolve situations where one side is like armed with their KPIs and their data, and the other side, creative, which is a word I have problems with to begin with, but have their vision and their dreams and both it turns into an armed situation uh, i would i would definitely empower the other side you 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 made it really nice kpis and creativity or vision mm -hmm. i would take both of them in consideration but when it's like one to one when it's a battle i would definitely give more power to vision it might not work it's not 100% going to work but it's still those data we're never sure that it's the right data that we are looking for i mean look at netflix they are they are, maybe this is, a, you can tell me more than this. Now, people love Western, uh, like word and stuff or Western uh, uh, era and portals. So yeah, let's make some time travel and you see what I mean? They start to see a trend, they start to see behaviors, but that's happened after having a lot of data. Do we have access to those data? I don't feel like we do actually. We just use some like third party sites and some like known charts, like how many Android devices we have in this area, region, this, how, what's the uh, demographic targets. So I still like feel, feel like we are using KPIs in really, really like uh, not really advanced way. And we trust those KPIs so much. So in my opinion, we should take them in consideration, but the final call should be to the, I don't, I, don't, I know you don't like this word, but creative or vision side instead. <laughs> I, I, oh, sorry, Oscar. Did, did you have best practices for this? 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about like a, a couple of different things. So it, it, it kind of like touches a bit upon what Ali is saying, but also um, in, in terms of the KPIs and, and also what I was saying earlier is that and when, when you're talking about KPIs and when you're talking about data, it's, it's like if you're only looking at one set of data or one KPI at one time, you get a complete, completely different story sometimes and then if you perhaps like combine four um, pieces of data at the same time because they can together tell, tell, tell a story. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's, it's like it can be a, um, a massive, massive struggle. Um, but like I said, I was I was like really really trying to think about it and how to put it uh, into words. So I'll I'll let you speak, Dennis, and I'll see if I can find uh, a good way to to put it into words. I guess I have been privileged in a way because data is um, it has much lower status in TV than in has than it has in in games. Um, so so there's never been. There's never been a battle there, uh, but but the reactivity is there 100%. Uh, they, they, I've sat with several executive producers who like have heard a number and say decided a course correction for the entire production based on that, where that course correction actually could be really bad um, for the end result. Um, so so the the. That what what I what I intuitively ended up with is creative and data informing the business case of that production because like creative has always been so hampered by by uh, limited budgets so like you end up building a thing uh, per the Netflix model and I dream of having access to that kind of data Jesus Christ <laughs> the, the cool productions they make and I, so I'm I not think, the only one I'm not the only one who actually dreams uh, to have access to the, yeah. Uh, you basically know what to do next. You basically yes. know what era, what ages, what actors, what the name of it's just insane. But to be in that position, you need to have access to a lot of data, quality data. And they do because we are literally using their product and we're choosing a movies and they have statistics and AI and machine learning and a lot of stuff. But to, to simply put it this, Dennis, you said like it's KPI and vision. And we should, uh, Oscar said, we should be also not be rigid. We should be very flexible and we should always know this freaking industry is just love the unknown and, and unexpected. During COVID, everyone's like, most of the gaming companies, I was like, oh, thrive to have like really like high graphical games and like really intense and among us, guess what? 2D game yeah. from nowhere. It's being released from 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Some couple of Twitch people, streamers, decided to play it. And now it's the most played game for that in, so for some period of time. Yeah. How you can see that via KPIs, you can. So, yeah, I, I can bet you as well. If, 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 the, if the development of Among Us would have been data-driven, they would not have made Among Us. No. They would, they would never have made Among Us. And like, I think you were asking um, previously, like, okay, what is one difference between the gaming industry and perhaps like uh, music or film industry? And I think one of those is that they go a lot more by gut. Like we're, we're all three creative industries, um, but sometimes I feel like the gaming industry does not really work as or, or, or like embrace the fact that we are a creative industry. So we're trying to be creative sometimes, but at the same time, we don't. We're trying to make informed decisions while we sometimes shouldn't. And then sometimes we're not making informed decisions when we should. 
So it's, it, I think you said, you touched upon it, like the complexity of making games. And I think that is the main difference, but, but, but still. Uh, Oscar, yeah. Oscar, what you said last, this could be a full podcast about how, when creative industry becomes a product line, when I see this happening in any like a neighbor city or like I say like, no, please remember you're working in creative business. It's like it's, if you translate this, just become just KPIs, dry, just numbers and just produce like any production line in like heavy steel industry, then it, it, we have lost, right? Yep. We have lost. Yeah. Like you, yeah, you, I think you, like you, you, yeah, sorry. Um, Dennis, you were asking previously about best practices um, in terms of, of like what you do when you have someone bearing down upon you. And for me, like, I think it's important, like with so many other times, always ask the what, the why, and who. So for me, especially like, okay, we have this data, we want to act on it. I'm like, why? Okay, the data says so. Okay, but for who? <laughs> and and the when. So I think I think it's really important to to like push back a little bit and make sure that whenever you act upon something, you do it for the right reason and for the right person or the right group or whatever, and, and the right time. And let's not forget that the data not it it. It will. It can actually enforce our prejudice about the audience. Um, I, I had this. That, that I, I think when I, I actually fell in love with data was during an experience working with a show called Ullared here in Sweden, where you're in this giant super mall uh, with uh, tens of thousands of visitors each day, and uh, we noticed that our audience was getting younger. And we also noticed, uh, the team actually noticed by by watching the crowds that there seems to be more people that, that aren't non-white people in the store. Like the, but we mainly only show white people in the show. Those, that's really the main cast. And we, we started speculating based on what little data we had because we're not gathering any information on like race or uh, we had gender and age more or less and when people stopped watching and decided to try and cast more diversely and then we fell into the next trap which is the teams couldn't find any non-white people in the store these were three teams all entirely white uh, and me and my colleague uh, both from foreign backgrounds, had to literally take our teams into the store and point at the people that are not white because they could not, they could literally not see them. Uh, and they, I mean, we're talking about thousands of people in a, in a <laughs> pack together in a store. So it's like they, they, there were, there were so many presumptions about what they were expecting to find that stopped them every step of the way and doing this actually raised our numbers by like two percent i mean i can't prove that that was all in that but two percent in tv during these times was a pretty big rise so i i guess i i have a hard time understanding the conflict because you can't do a, create a good product without without creative and you need that the creative needs the data to know what they're supposed to do so like just what's the problem <laughs> i think that's a uh, a good point for me to jump in and move it along to our final question oscar 
Yeah, so my final question is, um, does the game industry plan and or execute development different than other industries? And the context for this is, well, I think it's, it's, it's very common, it's more common than not for big productions or any production in general to, to be delayed or have like a massive increase um, in costs. Um, so yeah, um, I wonder what do you guys think? Um, do we plan and or execute differently than uh, other industries? I can see that actually gaming industry is more chaotic compared to any different industry. It's like stuff happens very fast. Sometimes it's faster than the, the teams to really digest what's going on. We do stuff that I don't see it's possible doing it in a lot of different industries. Like having a crash in the game, it's something like it's not weird or like anything. It's something players are used to. Uh, we can have our game. We can do, have a downtime for maintenance and stuff. It's something you don't want to see in like transportation app or like bank ID or like uh, even ordering food. It's more re re reliable while like in our case, it's not really the case. So I see this, there's a lot of differences because the outcome is quite different. The process is different. So, but I feel like they start to notice like the cost is increasing crazily and we, all right. And it's, it's going to be a lot of ways if we don't do it in a systematic way. So I feel like a lot, we, we're getting there. Stuff Im improved a lot because I've heard like, I have two, uh, I have actually one uh, in my engine team. He worked on uh, Far Cry 2 and 3. And uh, so I've heard a lot of like horror stories <laughs> compared to now. So I feel like it was a huge leap, but we're, we're, we're way behind. Looking at the numbers, I mean, even though I'm talking AAA studio, it's like, yeah, a couple of hundreds. It sounds like a lot. It's actually not. Looking at the complexity of the software, look at how many outsourcing do we have. Look how, but look at, like, I'm not going to name, but like a bank app could be thousands. Music stream app could be thousands. It is, it is thousands. I'm not, it's, it's just thousands. It's like basically an app streaming music. I'm this close to ask, why the hell you need a few thousand people for this? While look at like our game, for example, built 10 years ago with our own engine, own tools, multiplayer, connecting a lot of players, quest, races, achievements. Like, yeah, compare the complexity of those two softwares and compare the numbers. Doesn't make any sense. So I feel like it's different looking at the numbers, structure, uh, but we can do stuff. It's not possible in any different just Like we can hot fix stuff live. We can do stuff like it's really hard. I hard see this happening in any different product. I think, God, this is not exactly answering the actual question, but but I, I think we will see the need. Like if we want to be a healthy industry, we, we are going to have to lower the bar for quality in several cases. Uh, I love the example with, with my favorite music streaming application because I, I find myself sometimes swearing over not having a basic functionality that I really want. And they have thousands of people. How can I not get this podcast at this time in this way? And then I realized that like I'm, I'm pro I probably have a pretty skewed idea of what it takes to create a thing, really why people are working their asses off to hack something together that's actually incredibly complex. Uh, and yeah, I think we can go keep going that way for quite some time more. But it, yeah, it, it's the same in TV and film. You, you drive people to their knees and then you change the team and keep on going. 
it's it's like Dennis, I mean, aim into what you said, Trisha. Like you, you, you nailed it. You literally nailed it. And I feel like the company or the companies or the industry fueling from the passion. So you have a very talented individuals doing job. Actually, it's remarkable. They are doing job that shouldn't be done why by one person or job shouldn't be done by one team. That's how I see stuff is going in the wrong direction. And Oscar said, if I'm not mistaken, the how we overscope the projects is, is it's getting out of hand. And overscoping project is actually an issue start even with the students. They overscope the project. I keep telling them, please be realistic. It's something we humans do. We have a lot of ambitious. We have little little, little bit le- low estimation and quality is overlooked but for someone working uh, like QA for uh, like a few years plus five I keep have that in mind be realistic and I try to highlight risks beforehand and I feel like uh, I agree with you Dennis this is not going to be a healthy way moving forward that's why you hear a lot of like people really skeptical about joining the gaming industry because it's basically it's they hear crunching happening uh, which is I'm really sad to hear that here and there that it's happening and it's it's not really a healthy way to moving forward at all. Yeah, so um, one of the things that I've been hammered, like that's been hammered into my head ever since I got into the industry, and that is like under promise and over deliver. Everyone is mm-hmm. telling you that every week, under promise, over deliver. And I think, honestly, a lot of times it's literally the opposite happening. So many times we're being promised things that are not happening. Um, I think a very, very... A blatant example of this is this game Anthem, which had so many people excited. Like people were extremely excited. I was one of them, but it just like it felt like that was a game that probably would have benefited from from more love, more time, more money. But they like okay, now we just need to release this. Uh, let's just cut all the features that are actually going to make the game to like popular and interesting, and and let's just get it out there. Let's start earning money. And then uh, it tanked, completely tanked. Um, yeah. I, th- I think, I mean, we do have a much a much louder audience than most other media. And and I, I still think it's a mistake to think of AAA as a mass audience media, uh, frankly. It, it, it's, the audience is huge. No. No, no question about it, but they're also very uh, experienced with the media and the form. While uh, there, I, if there is a difference, TV film can take a bit more risk sometimes because the audience is used to they're they're doing the same thing. They're, everyone knows how to watch TV or or follow a film. Like there, there's no preconceived notions about it. And I would, I would say that the mobile market actually might prove that point because they can take pretty simple mechanics and sell it to such a huge audience like among us being a brilliant example of that happening and if if we could start finding ways of capitalizing that then that would be huge for AAA Brilliant, and I think uh, we'll end it there on uh, a little bombshell towards the end. Uh, <laughs> it's almost like a mic drop moment. Um, so 
I want to thank my guests, Ali, Oscar and Dennis for providing new insights into this topic. Uh, and thanks everyone for listening. Um, this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. If you would like to get involved in one of the upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at jordan.lound at evolution-nordics.com. And we will see you all next time.